It's said that your real life begins where your comfort zone ends. Well, it's about to get real as we have radically authentic conversations to help you thrive in your personal and professional life while navigating the twists and turns of being human. Buckle up, because this might get uncomfortable. Starts right now with Whitney Lordson. I'm really looking forward to today's conversation with Afarin today because we're going to speak about technology. And one thing that I've learned that the two of us have in common is a lot of curiosity about technology. I've had that my entire life. And perhaps it was because of the influence of my father, also my grandfather's. They were really into computers and taking things apart and putting them back together inventing things, using their hands when it came to all different types of tools. And I think being exposed to that as a little girl really like struck a chord in me. And my dad, I I remember he was so passionate about the development of computer technology. He took me to a computer museum, actually, given that you also live in Massachusetts. You may remember this. I think it might have been in Cambridge. It was a computer museum, and he took me in there. It was somewhere near the water, so maybe it was in in Boston, actually. But regardless, there was like all these cool displays to help teach adults and children about the evolution of computer technology. And I remember there was like a giant computer mouse that you could like climb on top of. And there were like all these exhibits you could go in. And my dad was really invested in me learning about this. And it worked because I got very interested in all sorts of computer-related things. I wanted to use every app on the computers that I had access to when I was in school. And I became someone who developed these tech skills. And wow, who knew how much they were going to come into play for me as an adult and shape my entire career. But the other thing that I'm really aligned with on Efren is you are interested in how technology can improve people's lives and also understanding the ways in which it might impact us in perhaps the not the so great ways, whether that's addictive social media the development of AI tools, both of those factors, both of those developments do have this fine line between improving our lives, helping us, and maybe influencing us in some negative ways or bringing up fear. AI is a great example of of something that a lot of people seem very fearful of. And given that you're passionate about helping change perspectives you're thinking about your legacy, what you want to leave behind, and reflecting at this point in your life about what is going to be good for yourself, other people, and the earth. All of this is going to come together in our conversation today, and I'm just so thrilled. So I think I'd love to begin with more of your personal history, especially because it's something that I would like to learn more about, how you grew up in Tehran, right? And you on your website, say that you like to act as a bridge between East and West. So I think that's a great starting point. What does that mean for you? And and what does your personal history bring to your work today in the United States? Sure. I was born and raised in Tehran. And my family, part of it, my father's family were more of a conservative side, if you will. Not conservative in the sense of not wanting change. My grandfather, for example, would never allow my aunts wear chador and was very intellectual in that regard. But they lived in the southern Tehran and they had a much more traditional way of life, whereas my mother's family were more modern. So I grew up in a country that was going through many changes because if you look at it at the end of the last century, the end of 20th century, Iran was basically 99.9% 14th century in some sense. And then the modern modernity came to Iran, both in terms of technology and also in terms of the way people thought. 
democracy, freedom, you know, those kinds of ideas that we associate with West. Uh, so Western thought, Western science and technology came to Iran and gradually changed people's life. So I saw the transition, not only basically horizontally, but also vertically. So you go from sudden Tehran, when my set of my grandparents lived, very traditional. People still, some women wore scarves, not too many chadors. And you go uptown and then it's like a mini skirts and uh, parties. And uh, I don't know, then we had an ice a castle that was like skating and it was no different than being, I don't know, in some sense in London or Paris. Many of the people in the northern Tehran had actually traveled to Europe, had a lot of Western outlooks to themselves. And I'm not saying either of them was good or bad. Each of them had their own place. But when a traditional country once is growing, if you don't try to somehow make them melt together, somehow become one, then you grow apart. And that's what happened in Iran. In, in Iran today, too, we had a bunch of people who wanted to go more towards West, more American. At one point, just before the revolution in Iran, we had the highest number of foreign students in America were Iranians. So, you know, you had that. And then at the same time, you had very traditional people who still believed in wearing a hijab and doing this and that and the other. And again, I'm not saying either of them are good or bad. I'm just saying that different ways of life. And we never came together. So over the years, we fall apart even further. And I always say my great-grandfather had 25 wives. He had a kind of like a hand, whatever. And I'm a PhD from MIT, so we have come a very long way in one sense. In another, no, and not so much. So I grew up in Iran. You know, I went to start an engineering school there. And then I came to America, and then a revolution happened, and I never went back. And I was lucky to be here. I was lucky that I didn't have, I mean, I haven't spent any of my life in Iran, so not professional life. So in that sense, I was lucky that I could build up from entry level and come up. And again, I was lucky to go to a fine school like, like MIT, which I'm very proud of. I'm very honored. So, so that's how it came about. My life has been half in the East and half in the West. And I still like to go to East. I like to travel. I like to observe and I like to see these transitions. Um, and again, you know, the best will be if, if we can somehow marry, create a marriage between the two rather than create silos. Does that make sense? It does. I love that word silo, actually. <laughs> it's not something I think I've thought a lot about until recently. And I'm curious, what is your definition of silo in this context? I think it's just living in your own little world and not wanting to bridge out, not wanting to go out. And it pains me because I love America. I love this country. I love this culture, this people. And I, it pains me when we somehow imprison ourselves into silos. So you live in Boston and this is your silo. You live in Cambridge, believe it or not, and it's a different silo. Don't talk to each other. We have very preconceived notion of who the other person is. Even by age, like you think that a 20-year-old has nothing to do nothing to say to a 60-year-old, which is not true. I mean, again, if you go look at the history of human being, a traditional society, people talk to each other. A young man or woman and an old man and woman, they talk, they have something in common, they respect each other's maybe opinion and whatever. So we live too much in silos and that's painful to me because I don't think that's very healthy. Yeah. I agree. And it's great language for me now, actually, because I like the way that you're phrasing this about the silos. And it's just fascinating to think about that and brings more context to why you're so passionate about building that bridge. And it seems like we have a great opportunity with technology. I mean, you and I are are in that in real time. We connected because of technology. You and I 
may not have ever met if it weren't for technology. We're able to speak to each other right now. We're able to reach other people through technology. There's so many benefits. And my aim is to create those bridges and to get away from those silos, as I will now say, through technology. But I think technology, as I was implying at the beginning and you and I were speaking about before recording, there's all these opportunities to bring us together. But technology also has an interesting way, especially right now in our culture, perhaps due to social media, where it is creating silos. And it seems sometimes hard to form a bridge out of those silos. And I kind of wonder, are we just bridging from silo to silo or are we taking away the silos so that they don't even exist. I'm curious about your thoughts on on where we're at now, perhaps any thoughts on how we got here and what your hopes are for shifting that in the future so that we can create more of, as you said, a marriage instead of a silo and not be so imprisoned. As human beings, and it's nobody's fault, It's we are human beings, we are kind of lazy. I'm the laziest of the people. And I just, confrontation, it's always expensive in terms of mental cycles. If you and I don't have everything in common, it seems that it makes it harder. But the thing is that we are social people. We need to resolve these conflicts. We need to accept it to some things. Maybe uh, you voted for X and I voted for Y, but I also like Red Sox and you like Red Sox. So What we are doing is that we are limiting ourselves and technology just makes it easier. The technology is a tool. As you just said it, it's a wonderful tool, especially during the COVID. Talk to your friends and family and this and that and the other, or I don't know, watch a movie or see a wonderful, I took some courses when I, during the COVID. It's all great things, but it also makes it easier for us to remain in our own silo. Back in the days, you had to get out and take a bus. You had to get out and go for coffee and maybe talk to some people that you don't want to. Maybe the other person who's sitting behind me is not exactly what I would date or whatever, but that's not important. The important thing is to as you said it, be curious about other people. What does this person has to say? And if I'm sitting in a, a Red Sox game, what would my the person who's sitting behind me thinking? Why is she or he there? I think we need to be proactive more than we have ever been. And just break the silos. We need to break the boundaries. This is what we need to do instead of, I mean, being a bridge is good. But breaking down the walls is even better. Oh, I love that. I'll pause for a second. I want to write a note about that. Firm believer of you, sometimes you have to break things and that's what we need to do. And another thing that a little bit bothers me about these days is that our children used to be that they would go out and play, you know, where they would go and play baseball game or basketball game. Nowadays, they're not. When you play baseball, let's say in a team, Some kids are better than the others. It's nature of human being. I'm not a great athlete, but it's just that being out there and talking to another person who is not like you is healthy. That as people, that's what we have evolved. We are evolved to be collaborative in some sense. That's what made us human beings. And we are getting away from that. And to me, that's not good. We are not using our tools to good effect. And it's interesting. I mean, I spend a lot of time pondering this, researching this. And one reason that I suspect has led to the state of things is that a lot of technology is designed to profit off of, is designed to monetize. And a lot of companies have tapped into some of the psychological basic core of the human experience and capitalized on it, for lack of a better term, through things like creating fear and outrage. And fear and outrage seems to be a major issue that we have, uh, but yet humans are very drawn to that. There's something about it that activates us and gets us very interested 
to the detriment of us becoming more in our silos, to to creating more walls. We think we're protecting ourselves um, through that fear. But I think that protection is at the cost of our connection. And I'm curious what you discover through this. I mean, even all sorts of judgment, prejudice, is this one country is better than the other, hierarchical models. And I'm curious, since you didn't grow up in the United States, do you see that magnified more here? Like, since I don't have any outside of awareness, because I've always lived in the United States. Yeah, unfortunately, America is ahead of everybody else. Unfortunately, everybody else in the world is looking up to America. And that puts a little bit more pressure on us, because if everybody else is imitating us or not imitating, but following us, we have even a more of a responsibility to be to not to be the leaders, to be the people who p- others look up to. And it's I grew up in Iran and we always looked up at America as a, as a great example. I was in Vietnam. Uh, we, we took a trip to Far East, to Thailand and Vietnam just about a month ago. And everybody there is also looking to America. America is an example. And if we are the example, then we need to not to fall apart. And fear is a very strong emotion. There's no question about that. But we are always fearing. And technology that can make you and I talk with each other like this can also bring in some bad actors, for the sake of better word, into foray. I want to go back to what you just said about the commercial aspect of it. For better or worse, we have, and this is something that I do day in and out. I work with startups and I work with big companies who want to get into the technologies and things of that sort. We are always looking to commercialize everything. And sometimes the technology isn't ready for it or we're not ready for it for that technology. So. The way we go about doing all this innovation has not been the greatest for us as human beings, for our psyche. I was just reading an article that people are trying to come up with uh, tools to automate so that uh, we have our productivity up. And the problem is that, and then they they made an example of uh, this um, CEO who or uses AI to write a memo to to wish everybody a happy Memorial Day. And I said, well, rather than writing that memo, why don't you send everybody a gift card for 50 bucks? No memo. I'm not going to read the memo just before I go for Memorial Day holiday. But if my boss or my boss's boss or the CEO of the company is sending me something that's a little bit meaningful to me, is $50 gift box can buy hamburgers for my family, maybe. But what I'm saying is that that pressure to commercialize and monetize everything, if that something doesn't have a monetary value, and I am as capitalist as anybody else, by the way. I mean, I'm not saying that monetizing and capitalizing and making money is bad. No, it's very good. It shouldn't be our first goal. It shouldn't be our objective. Life is much more richer is much more important than just x y or z as i said that's that's part of what i want to convey to people or live my life a good way but also communicate that to others yeah i i'm so grateful that you're working on that because i think that's so important and one thing that i'm curious to hear more about is do you feel like the average person is ready for all of this AI development because I consider myself an early adopter. I really enjoy trying new technology. It's exciting when it's novel. But I've noticed there's a lot of potential with AI tools. The average person doesn't really understand it, doesn't know how to use it. And I see some excitement, but also that fear that I mentioned before. And given what you just said about how it might be a bit dangerous for our psyche. And people, as the example you gave, like they're trying to use it as a shortcut with while missing the whole point, like what people actually want. And so with all that said, do you feel like it's a little, like AI needs more time before it, it the masses start utilizing it? Are we in like a dangerous time with it? 
Oh, absolutely. First of all, I don't think AI is ready for the showtime. I think that it's very nice that they did an experiment. I'm sure that you have heard of it, but people talk about computers. They say garbage in, garbage out. I mean, you put bad data in, you get bad data out. In terms of, for example, large language model, what we have done is that the developers basically allowed the AI to look at everything on the web. And as you know, and as I know, on the web, there are great works of art and literature, but there's also a lot of garbage and misinformation and this and then the other. So we have this experimental thing and we are putting it in front of people and people I've done a lot of product development in my life. And one of the things that is that when you give people something, they break it. They work, play with it. They want to see what it can do, what it can't do. It's a nature of human being. We're doing the same thing with AI. But the thing about it is that can make us really upset and it can give us misinformation. It can lie to us. It can make you feel really bad. I mean, there was an article about especially younger people whose life is, they don't have the life experience of an older person, but even older people. I mean, everybody is is getting hooked on these things. And again, because the technology has gotten so much more complex, if you will, A, it's not product. It's like, as I said, just going back to the, uh, to the forever chemicals, we put those chemicals out without knowing what it can do in the long run. We put layers of Teflon. Everybody, every household in this country and then the rest of the world used Teflon material. And Teflon is now banned. We now know that it's banned, but it took us some time. And by we this time now, I mean people who are responsible. I mean, I know that people in Google, for example, stepped back, some of them, and the people like that just say, I, we don't want to have anything to do. This is an experiment at this point in time. We know that it can do good. We know, for example, it can bring good data in or whatever, but use it in very controlled environment. Very much so as we people did in the beginning of the computer era. One of my first jobs was to develop this very, very elaborate, complicated model. Back then, our computing power was pretty limited. So it was like much less than this, like one tenth, one hundredth of one millionth of this. Uh, but we were trying to do this complicated. When you're trying to understand the programs put together and it's debugging the system, you put some known input in and you look at the output because at some point the programs become unwieldy, so to speak. I mean, there's errors in it, which you don't know until much, much later. But I knew the physics. So when I started getting garbage responses, I knew something was wrong. And what was wrong, and I went to it, and it's a long, was long process, but I found out, okay, we are hitting the limitation in the computational power of the computer. So basically, it's doing what chat GPT or AI, a large language, would do. You don't know it. You just throw out whatever garbage is in your, I don't know, your storage system is, uh, whatever. But what I'm saying is that these are not ready for public consumption. We still... We can use it in limited capacity in the businesses, in whatever we can uh, sort of have an idea whether it's doing the right thing or not. And for people also, this is the other side of the thing is that people are not ready for it either. Because when you see somebody in the street, I don't know about now, but, but back in the days, you would smile. If they're your neighbor, you say hello. That's part of social manners. That's a good manner. You were a good, well-brought-up person if you knew this manners. We don't know what is the rule of the road, what is the social manner in a society today, because we now have more of a digital society than a physical society. We have our friends on Facebook and on this and that, and we still need the friends' presence, if we can, physically. And via telephone and things like that. But we don't know. Everybody was complaining about the fact that people can be very rude online because it's not your neighbor that you would say hello to. 
of even though they may be your digital neighbor. But we haven't developed a lot of social manners or laws. I mean, our laws, we don't know what is the product liability for an AI-based system. What if the AI tells you that, oh, you need to take 10 aspirins and get a stomachache? What's the liability there? We just are not ready for it. And technology isn't ready for us. I'm just saying that both. And that's why I'm saying the emphasis on monetization, we need to bring that down. We need to bring that fire down. Yes. Yeah. And I think it's making a lot of sense in some new ways to me as you're speaking on this, because right now, it seemed to be in a stage with our online economy, which is really young, relatively. It's like not even my whole lifetime that we've had all these tools. Like I remember watching the web developing as a child. And so it's relatively new. And I remember all the mistakes of the dot-com era when everybody was thinking there's so much money to be made online and a lot of people failed. And I think we might be in a similar stage right now with social media and AI tools where there just seems like it's like a gold rush, so much opportunity, but a lot of danger because it's new territory to your point, we haven't developed a lot of the laws, the rules, the regulations around this. And yet people are proceeding so quickly. And maybe we haven't been taught enough discretion and personal responsibility or awareness to even identify these dangers. Certainly for me, I'm just becoming aware of those things. Given my long history in social media, which I was watching that evolve in real time as well. And It felt so exciting, so many opportunities. But I think part of the danger is that the negative consequences of these things are not highlighted nearly as much as the positive sides and the promise. And I think, to your point, that may be very connected to the monetization opportunity because you're not going to make as much money if you're pointing out the danger all the time. You're more likely to monetize something if you're talking about the upsides what's possible, the power of something. And as human beings, we're very susceptible to the promise. Exactly. Another word you've used is laziness. I mean, the the truth is, I guess, human beings, we're always looking for shortcuts. We want to give the least amount of energy into something as possible as part of our way of, of surviving. So we're drawn to things that feel easy and promising and exciting. but not always hyper aware or aware enough of the potential downsides to it. Absolutely. And, I, you know, just going back to the monetization, I was in a startup conference last week, just last Wednesday. And the thing about the entrepreneurs is that every one of them, and I work with a whole bunch of them, young, younger people, maybe some younger, some more, everybody wants to do good, but everybody wants to, but there is a pressure. I mean, when you, venture capitalists are all for zero or nothing. It was a, one of the entrepreneurs, and this is a young man, very, very accomplished, but he has a small company. And he says, I wish that it wasn't feeling that I have to make zillion, billion dollars for a venture capitalist. Maybe just being happy with a proper return on investment and being patient. That's another thing. I mean, um, it pains me when I think about people like Elizabeth Holmes, who could have been so much better, who could have really done well, going and basically creating this Ponzi scheme for them. Or the, uh, the gentleman who did the FTX. Oh, these people, are they're so bright. They can do good. And they don't because there is a pressure to get to the money faster. And I think it's just as a society and younger people I mean, some young people have the wisdom, many, and it's not their fault. I mean, being young, you want to break the barriers, you want to do good. And I think it's just, we are, we need to step back and just say, okay, just wait a minute, wait a minute. I mean, if I am 25 and I'm not happy because I think this is just 
overwhelming, then if you're 45, you got to know that as well. If you're 65, you got to know that as well. It's just that we get caught up in the cycle and can't see the forest for the tree, so to speak. We can't see the big picture. What are, why are we doing what we are doing? If we do that for just a second or more, and I don't want to be sort of like a old hippie kind of thing and say, well, we all have to live in, I don't know, commune and and have a very, very... No, we don't have to do that. We can take advantage of all the fruits of the modern life, but we don't have to be so enamored with the latest toy. And we don't have to rush to make that monetized, make that commercialized. Let it mature. Let the technology mature. Let the use models mature. How can we use this as is for the good of people individually and as a society? We need our society. Given all of your experience working with, sounds like a lot of young startup founders, what are some of the steps for people to not get caught up in this cycle? Because I think you touched upon something really really key here. And it's not just startup founders, but I see this a lot in any online business. There's a lot of pressure. There's a lot of excitement. It's incredibly easy to either and get caught up in it and or be going down some sort of path of promise that somebody else is trying to take you down because they want to make money off you. It's like there's a temptation to make money and then there's the side of people using you to make money for themselves. And both avenues can lead us to getting so caught up. So what do you recommend for people to be more discerning? Just go back to Nancy Reagan, just say no. It is like a drug, believe me. I've been there. I have heard people. I've seen people. It's the dopamine. It's, okay, so you made this, you made that. We just got to say, you know, just step back and It's not only the young people or the old people, it's just as a society. And I think people are starting, some people at least, starting to see the effects. People are frazzled. We're trying to do five things at the same time. Once I was in Los Angeles, I never forget because I learned something from that. I was in Los Angeles, we went to a museum. And Los Angeles, I don't know, it's not the city known for museums, but there's some good ones. And this was a special occasion, and there was a lady who was telling people how to be mindful when they go to a museum. And normally, and I don't know about you, but for me, I just walk around and look at this. Oh, this looks pretty. It is nice. She was very nice. So she said, okay, pay attention. Pay attention to different things. And you don't have to be an art critic to enjoy And she was so, what she said was so meaningful that if you're mindful, you don't need to go to five different floors. You can be, just look at five paintings or six paintings and get some meaning, some communication going with that. And that's very important. Of course, you're not, people don't, may not like X, may not like Y, but find something that you can spend a little time with, get an enjoyment from it, create some interaction between yourself and the artist. So to me, that's, I learned something from her. And I think that's how we have to do with our life. Sometimes when we feel frazzled, and I know especially when you have children, young children, and you have family, and you have a profession and everything else, it becomes overwhelming because you have too many things, you're doing too many things at the same time, and then you want to catch up with this and that, just say no. I know that the dopamine is very, very, very powerful, but we don't have to do all of that. It's when they say, okay, you have data, you have information. At the end of the day, what you want is not the information, it's the wisdom. And the wisdom may not take as much data as you think. We like to have big data, like more data, more data, throw in the whole internet, throw in But sometimes you just don't need that much. Sometimes you just need to focus on something. And that's just basically my philosophy at this point in my life. I appreciate that. And I know it's difficult. Yes, yes. It is difficult. And I think the dopamine side of it is a huge part of it. And a lot of people are becoming more aware that 
they are being a little bit psychologically manipulated through technology. It's tapping into our desire for dopamine, those feelings. We're struggling with mental health so much as it is. And many people, including myself, find it's nice to tune out of stress, tune out of the world by going into technology. Then there are people like myself who see the opportunity online and are very drawn to that because the appeal of creating your own schedule, working for home, being your own boss, all of that is really wonderful in theory. But there's the obstacle course of maneuvering through all of the factors. And there really isn't a roadmap yet, as we've been saying, because it's still so new. And as I'm sitting here reflecting on social media and online businesses, I'm coming back to your point where it's still very early. And I think that we jumped into a lot of this as a society very quickly. And there are the bad actors that you mentioned too. There are people that we've learned, unfortunately, just like to your point, the forever chemicals example is so great here. The appeal of nonstick pans sounds great because nobody wants to burn their food. They want to make cooking easier. It sounds wonderful. And so people buy into something like that, thinking that they're doing something good for themselves without recognizing the costs. And I think we're in a similar place with that tech. And yet, you know, what I struggle with, Efren, is sometimes I feel like I'm the only one who's being cautious. And I I don't say that from a place of ego. I just mean it feels a bit lonely. I stepped back from social media about five months ago because I wanted to notice how it was impacting me mentally. I noticed that I felt addicted to it. And yet, I don't know many people who have stepped away. So here I am trying to connect with people, but when everybody I'm trying to connect with seems to be hooked on technology and doesn't mind or care about the dangers of it, I end up feeling very alone. I'm curious, have you ever experienced that? And Do you have any wisdom for navigating a time where the masses seem to be utilizing technology and maybe it's the minority of people who are a little bit more cautious? Yeah, I think that's quite reasonable because we're all, I mean, another thing that we're all afraid of is FOMO, a fear of missing out. You know, it doesn't matter what stage of life you're in. There's always FOMO that, oh, I should have been there. But but I think it takes effort. It's to actually disengage. It's not easy. You can do evangelizing, which is great to do. You can convert people, even if one person or two people and five people, and then there'll be 10 and there will be, there's a point of inflection, as they say in the world of startups and venture capital, there's an inflection point somewhere uh, where people will start seeing. So I think it is lonely. It is always saying, Going against the grain of everybody else, going against the people. Imagine you're walking in the street that everybody is going north. You want to go south. It's not easy. You got to find your way through it. But if the south is the place to go, then the more you tell people, the better it is because you don't know. And that's one of the reasons that I want to write and I want to spend time in speaking with others and whatever I can do to tell them that you're not alone. I mean, I'm here. There's other people who are there. And there's a kernel of truth to what we all are saying, because we're not saying to throw away the technology. Nobody says no. We're not anti-vaxxers. We're not anti-anything. We're not anti-social media. Social media can be very good. If my cousin puts the picture of new daughter in, I know that she had a daughter. So it's good. It's not bad. It, it has a lot of usage. But again, the thing is that the minute you're trying to optimize the monetization, then you have to make a choice that is not very good. So when you're putting that algorithm there, that what I want is the maximum number of eyeballs in this particular case or whatever. So it's not me looking at the picture of my cousin, I don't know, Sarah, is not going to bring a lot of eyeballs. It's not going to sell ads for X, Y, and Z. That's not how Facebook would operate or any of the social media. They all have very similar algorithms. Some are better, some are worse. That 
They are looking for what you are, you want to see, because it's like the old fashioned thing. You bought magazines and you didn't buy magazines to look at the ads, but the ads were part of the magazine, except that with a magazine, we have a little bit more choice. We can put our, our eyes here or here or whatever we want. With the internet, it has become very sophisticated because we know how human being behaves in some point. And we put the ad where people will see it. It's a pop. You can't even get rid of it. It's like, so people are talking about, we need to reduce our glorification of this money. I mean, what can Mr. X or Ms. Y do with $10 billion? I don't know. Is it important? I don't know. Okay, I can understand having a beautiful house. I can understand wearing beautiful clothes. It's part of life. But there's a point after which that money becomes not very useful to enjoy. Then these are the things that, as we pointed out, is against the grain. And that's why it needs thoughtfulness. It needs stepping back. It needs to say no. Because otherwise, you just said it about we have a crisis in young people and old people committing suicide, a mental disease. We have an opioid crisis. It's like there's an underlying reason for that because we have lost our sense of humanity. We have lost the sense of community. We have lost, that's in my opinion, and I'm not a psychologist, obviously, but that's what I see. That's what I feel somewhat responsible because technologists, and I'm not apologizing for that because the communication technology or technology in general have brought good things to life. But it also is forcing us to think in many ways. And especially, in, as I said, in making us more human, making us more think, more internal focused in terms of and not be so afraid of contradicting. I'm not contradicting, but debating. Back in the days when my kids were going to school, they had debate teams. I don't know whether they still have it, but that was a good way to teach kids. Okay, so I remember that my son was in the model UN. And at one point, the teacher forced, I mean, the teacher was very good. I liked him. He made people randomly assign them to different groups. You are Palestinian now and you are a Israeli, whatever, you know, the conflicts of, of the day. And that made kids to go back, okay, I don't really believe in X or Y or Z, but I need to prepare for this debate. And to prepare for that debate, they had to look into the other side's argument. And it is good for us to look at the other people's argument. I can see, I'm an immigrant. It's good to have policy that allows people to come here to this country and to take advantage of its good things. But at the same time, I also see the argument for a lesser and not so affluent community where an immigrant may end up, which that the presence of that children force that community to go and hire some English as second language. So the way to deal with it isn't to say, well, you don't want immigrant, then you must be a reactionary person. It's not the case. You know, that person, if you talk to them and go further down, it's not easy to say, okay, well, why do you not like immigrants? And then it's not, again, not easy. And social media and a lot of media in general are taking advantage of that and creating a chasm, creating the silos, creating the conflict. But it's nobody's trying to go and say, okay, I understand. You know, that's another thing. Bill Clinton always said, I feel your pain. Yes, you're not right. There's no right or wrong. Everybody has a point. The bottom line is that we have to come together and do what's best for the society as a whole. Sometimes what's best for this society is not best for me, but as long as I can live with it, that's okay. And again, Technology just makes it easier to disconnect. I only want to talk to people who say I am 100% correct. That makes it 
much harder to talk with anybody but another bot, a chatbot of some kind, who agrees with everything you say. That's another fear that I have. We lose our ability to see other people's point of view, especially when when we don't agree with them. I mean, I can't agree with 100% of anything that somebody else thinks about it, but I can be sympathetic. I can be empathetic. I can understand their point of view and I can try to work with it within a proper framework. It's really beautiful because you're such an advocate for, for all of this, helping others see different perspectives, encouraging it. And throughout this conversation, I think back to a lot of the research that I've done around how a lot of things are monetized through polarization. We are fighting an uphill battle, essentially, against this pressure to fight each other, to oppose each other, because that is what tends to make money. Like terms like clickbait, ideas like fake news, like it's all about what can we do to manipulate someone? What can we do to convince somebody of something? It's, in my experience in marketing, I've seen all of this evolve and it's fascinating how we've essentially been trained to manipulate one another as opposed to coming together. And now in my life, I'm starting to look for ways that I can generate an income to pay my bills because we all deserve to be able to survive financially. I want to have a sustainable financial life, but not at the cost of disconnection, not at the cost of manipulation. I don't want to be involved with that, but it's harder to find a more ethical way of doing business these days. And I think more and more it's being revealed to me how many people are not even aware of these ethical challenges we're up against. But I think most of us can sense there's a disconnection. Loneliness is an epidemic. You're mentioning the mental health crisis that we're in. A lot of people wonder, is it because we're so lonely? You've pointed that out a lot today too, how we're living in a digital society that's taught us to stay in our bubbles and to also use people for our own financial gain. <laughs> and we have to relearn ways of connecting with ourselves and others. I love that example you gave of the museum. I'm curious which museum it was because I live in Los Angeles. So maybe it'll inspire me to go. And I love that idea of I don't need to go see the entire museum. Maybe I can just take in a little bit and really find meaning in it versus trying to do it all and adhere to this idea of FOMO. Like, if I don't do the whole museum, I'm missing out. But what if I'm actually missing out on a meaningful experience with a smaller part of it? And that's one of my big takeaways from talking with you too. It's so beautiful. And lastly, I would love to hear from you something that you mentioned before we started recording, which was your desire to leave a legacy. At this point in your life, you said that you are looking at all these ways that we can be more careful, we can make greater decisions for the earth. And you said that you're examining what you want to leave behind without being morbid, but really thinking through at this stage in your life, what can you do from now on to leave a legacy? And what does that look like for you? What actions are you taking to make that happen? Well, I think that one of them is that I am trying to write to get my voice out and talk with people. Just tell them what I think. That's one of them. It's, that's the biggest contribution I see myself. I'm working with what you said about monetization is very true because this is the dilemma for every entrepreneur. How am I going to make money? And believe me, I have never seen a kid coming to me and say, I, I want to swindle people and I want to manipulate them to, to make money. Every single entrepreneur that I have seen in my life wanted to do good. People want to make an impact. And I want to make an impact, talking about the legacy. I want to make an impact. Maybe it's a small, maybe it's big. I don't know. But I want to make an impact by making people more aware, by hoping that what I say will make them less lazy and more aware and more active in terms of being a better society. And again, we are social animals. We need our society. 
we cannot live as individuals. And we need to create whatever roadmap or rules of the road or the laws of the world, helping that to shape the society so that we can all live in it and we can all try. And we can all thriving and paying your rent and, and your mortgage and, and your car and whatever is not extraordinary. We all should be able to do that. And the fact that we don't have a good way of monetization is just means that this is not jailed yet. If you look at, again, the end of last and mid-19th century, when the printing press allowed a lot of people to create a lot of newspapers, we had yellow news. We had news that didn't exist. So people were all making these things up. And then the laws came about and say, hey, if you write that this is uh, yellow or this is red, you're liable. We don't have that laws just yet because laws are slow. And we don't have, the other thing is that we created this thing called respect. If somebody did something bad, if he was, he or she was found to be a swindler or a, or a fake or whatever, it would have had some social stigma associated with it. We haven't formed those yet for the new society, for the digital society. What I think is good for us to say, look, let's just wait for five minutes and see if we can digest what we have already discovered and we already have never innovated and then create our society around it before going, creating even more fake news and more fake this and that and the other. So I think that awareness have become is coming. I think you can see that some of the media, some of the some are legacy media, like, I don't know, New York Times or Wall Street Journal or Washington Post. They all started to have some paywalls. These paywalls are not mature just yet. Some of them are too expensive for most people. Newspapers were used to be like, I, I don't know, 25 cents. So, so you got to make the paywall so that it is not like that. We have to innovate around business models. I think that's where the innovation should come. I think rather than trying to go for the next shiny thing that we can think about, quantum computings or AIs, quantum computing is far from being reality. I'm telling you, because I can see that I come from semiconductor background, but people are thinking about it as though it is going to happen tomorrow. I had a, a conversation, somebody asked me, so what's the supply chain look like? I said, we don't even know what we're going to make these things. I mean, we have some that work, scaling it up and engineering it and whatever. It's, we're far from that thing. I think we just got to say, okay, we want to do innovation, but let's innovate around the parameters that makes this shiny thing more usable by more people. Let's not leave people behind. And let's help creators to make money from their creation. They don't want to be making a trillion dollar, but they want to make a decent living and they are entitled to it. And then as a consumer, we also have to say, okay, what do I want? Do I want like some news that I can't trust and makes me um, jittery because I don't know whether or not it's true or not? Or I want something that is true and I enjoy and I listen to and I take advantage of whatever is there. So again, we just got to slow down. <laughs> that's, that's the whole point. Let's slow down. I know it's very difficult. Uh, believe me, I know I've been there. I've been a professional woman with two kids, young kids. And it's like I tried when I was, for example, my kids were growing up, we would go food shopping together because that was our time together. And we tried to make it a time together. We didn't want to be frazzled and just, but that was all we had. I mean, the realities of life is there, but we just got to say, okay, is this important to me and my well-being and my family's well-being and my society's well-being or not, or it's a supervision. Again, going back to the example about the memo, that CEO should think, okay, is it worthwhile for me to use a person or an AI or whatever 
to write a seven-paragraph memo to wish everybody a happy Memorial Day. No, just send the text. Send everybody $50 gift card because then they will remember you on their Memorial Day. Maybe it's not a lot of money, but just going back to my legacy, I want everything that I do matters to me, matters to somebody else. So I think that's the legacy I want to leave. It's a beautiful legacy. And you've shared so much wisdom. I feel like you're already leaving that legacy right now. This idea of slowing down. It's helpful for me. I mean, we're coming up to halfway through 2023. I don't know how we got here so fast. But at the beginning of this year, that was my goal was to slow down. And looking back over the last five months or so, I actually haven't been on track for that, to be honest. (laughs) It's like you're such a great reminder for me to slow down. You've also exemplified and shown me and hopefully some others that there are people who are advocating for different ways of utilizing technology, growing the awareness, not getting so caught up in it, stepping away from all the frazzle and the dazzle and the dopamine. And really, let's digest that. And I like that term too. I feel like more centered after speaking with you. I feel more inspired to slow down and to digest and to step away from all that hustle which again has been so contagious, very easy to get caught up all of this. But if we move so fast, we lose track of what we're doing and it's harder to leave a legacy. It's harder to figure out what matters to ourselves. How can we do anything that matters to others? And you've just given so much wisdom, perspective, food for thought today. I'm I'm so grateful for who you are and what you do. And it's amazing that you work with young entrepreneurs to bridge all of these silos to maybe deconstruct the silos to take down the walls and to find a way for us to come together and connect. And I hope we can get there because of people like, I hope we can get away from the disconnection and the lack of community and center ourselves within other people that might not be just like us. That message that you shared today too, of of making sure that we're incorporating different ways of thinking and not staying in some bubble. That's a huge aim of mine with this show. So thank you for reminding me and the listener to do some more out of the box thinking, do some more connection to others, do some more digestion and do our best to slow down. Thank you so much for giving me the opportunity to share. Anytime, I'm always happy to talk, happy to connect with your audience and happy good days. You're such a positive person around this. So for anyone who's interested in connecting with you, is the best way to start on your website? Well, actually, I have publication posts on Medium called The Counterview. Fantastic. Oh, I haven't looked at that yet. I'll put that in the links. I'll put that in the show notes and the descriptions. Yes. And basically what I'm doing there is creating the posts, the same as what I was talking to you about uh, They're the same ideas, just thinking. And that's the best way to connect with me. And obviously, it's uh, everybody is welcome as well to connect me through LinkedIn or through the medium and any other way. So excellent. I'll put links to it all so people can choose what path that they take to get back to you. And for the listener, that's in two places. The easiest place to start is to look in the description of the episode on your podcast player. It might be clicking a see more button or to expand it out. There'll be a little paragraph describing this episode with a link. And I'll put the medium in there. I think that's a lovely place. If you want more links like LinkedIn, Afrin's website, anything else that we've discussed today, there's a full blog post based on the transcript at my website, which is wellevator.com. That's W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com. And every episode of the show has all the resources, everything in one place. So if you'd like to go beyond your podcast player, you can find it there. But if you want to stay on your podcast player, just look at the description. There's a link right there for you to make it really easy to connect with Afrin and continue on this journey of learning and inspiration and wisdom that she's given us today. So thanks again for being here with me. 
Thank you. Anytime, just call on me and I'll be there. Thank you. Thanks for listening and getting out of your comfort zone with us today. For show notes and more high-performance resources to help you thrive, go to wellevator.com. That's W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com.